Welcome to Romancing Nancy Drew. I'm your host, Indy Nickerson, which is short for Nancy Drew Nickerson, of course, as you know by now. And welcome to season three. Um, if you are interested in following me on Twitter, my handle there is Indy Nickerson as well. Or you can follow the show at Romancing Nancy, which is probably going to be a tad more appropriate because I'm all over the place on my main account, y'all. Just all the fuck over it. Today we're going to be talking about the clue of the tapping heels, which, oh my god, like for the first time I actually sat down and did a thorough list of everything that happens in this damn book, and there's like four fucking plots. So we've got like an A plot, a B plot, a C plot, just a a shit ton of ships on our battlefield. Just, it's all over the place, y'all. It's just, oh my god. Um... I read a book a few years ago because a friend recommended it to me and she was like, it's really good. And I was like, this is four books that were put into a blender and just mangled because, oh my God. And this is like that, except for that all the arcs pretty much resolve, which is cool, except for the one that I think this is most interesting actually doesn't, but that's fine. Um, So yes, welcome to season three. We are back in the original mystery stories again. So we're picking up in 1939. I think at this point they were doing about a book a year, and of course this is before uh, America had entered World War II, so there is a fun book that I'm sure I'm going to do where Ned writes from Europe talking about how he really hates it there because <laughs> he's there during World War II with the implication that he was drafted, even though that is definitely never actually mentioned in the books. Um, <laughs> but I can just imagine Ned being like, I fucking hate it here. <laughs> And I actually wrote that story. Um, anyway, uh, Clue of the Tapping Heels is, at its heart, at the real emotional core of this story, is about a cat lady. Like, just live with that for a minute. Just a cat lady in 1939. Just imagine it. Um, this book actually picks up with, and I put this in my notes for this actual book, um, that Hannah's saying, land sakes, like we're in a fucking mini pearl skit. Um, because Nancy is, of course, practicing her tap dancing, because, of course, that's what Nancy would be doing, is practicing some fucking tap dancing, and I was like, like the Virginia Reel, but not as racist, huh? <laughs> Sad note, as always, we're gonna encounter a, some just casual racism in this book, and, um, some really weird magical ableism, like, we'll get to it, you'll not enjoy it, actually, or maybe you will, like, it's fine, um, so Nancy's practicing her tap dancing, and Hannah's like, what the, f- why would the fuck would you be doing this right now? And Nancy's like, I figured out a, a cool thing. I can do Morse code as tap dancing. And Hannah's like, of course, that's exactly the Venn diagram of your interests is Morse code and the weirdest fucking hobbies. So, <laughs> so Nancy's practicing, and at one point her friends come over and like, what are you doing? And Nancy's like, Morse code tap dancing and they're like fuck yeah sign us the fuck up and so all three of them are and they're just tap dancing their little asses off but anyway um I cannot remember exactly why the fuck they're going through Berryville which I do love the names of shit in these books because it's like the author was like I'm just gonna throw a dart at a noun and just add the word ville to it or another word that stands for city like borough um <laughs> so Berryville you can't actually find River Heights on a map if if you're trying to triangulate all this shit because it's like generic Midwest. 
it's only once we get to the files that River Heights is 100% in Illinois. Um, so yeah, they're driving and they're going through or up to Berryville for some fucking reason. And they almost run into a injured animal on the road and they stop and they're like, oh my God, it's a kitten. And Bess is like, I think it's a Persian. And so they're excited about it. And they're like, oh my God, let's name it Fuzzy and it's wounded. So let's take it home. And so they take it home and coo over it. And Hannah's like, I will just put it in a little box because remember this household is probably full of injured animals at all times. Like possibly there are parakeets. We don't know. It's fine. Hannah has like possibly been bandaged up every fucking animal in the entire fucking neighborhood. Um, so they put the Persian kitten in a box and Nancy's like, it's so cute. I might just adopt it. And the next day Carson sees in the newspaper that there's an advertisement from somebody named AB Carter that says that they want the, they're looking for a lost kitten and they're offering a $20 reward. I think it's $20. Yeah. Which is a shit ton of money. Like a $20 reward is like not, not nothing because remember at this point like a dollar is worth I think that honestly we've gone up so much uh later in the book somebody buys a dress for $189 and it's like $3,700 now like it's just ludicrous the amount of inflation between these two things so anyway Nancy sees it and she's like oh a reward's being offered the cat sounds like the same cat so okay so they take the cat up there because, yeah, Bess and George go along because, of course, they do. Because who believes in school? None of us. None of us, y'all. So they take the cat up there and they go to the house. And the house is, like, kind of shitty looking on the outside. Like, it's clearly not well kept, not, not well maintained. But the woman who answers the door, and you can always tell who the good people are in Nancy Drew, is because she looks at them with this, like, like faded, quiet dignity. Like, she's got kind eyes and... You're like, okay, you're good people. You're good people. I mean, she's white. She's she's good people. There's lots of bad white people too. Um, but like she has this bearing about her, like she's distinguished. Like there's a lot of code words for like somebody who had money at one point and currently doesn't, but is still good people. So she's like, Oh my god. Also, there are cats like everywhere. Like is the place is just ridiculous with cats. And so actually on the way up like they've heard a rumor that this cat apparently belonged to a cat lady so they stopped and got like a bunch of cans of tuna because of course they did because they heard that she was down on her luck and when they pull up they're like oh hell yeah she is down on her luck so they're like well at least the cats will have one good meal so um they bring the kitten up and they're like we've got some tuna in the car and she's like oh my god that'd be great so like they open the cans of tuna and of course it turns into just like this like, this may or may not be the beginning of a horror movie situation. Um, but while the cats are eating and they're talking to this old woman, like, trying to find out what's going on. And I say old. She's not old. She's, like, above middle age. But she's not, like, decrepit or anything. Like, she's clearly a little bit high strung. But And also, when they're talking to her, Nancy's like, I feel like she was probably an actress. Just the way she carries herself. She's just, she's giving me that vibe. So this, like, I think at first it's just, like, this one person who comes up and is, like, she needs to get rid of all these damn cats. That There's nothing good that can come of this. And they're, like, I, I literally do not give a fuck. Like, this is not my fight. This is not my town. Whatever. So while they're, um, she's actually talking to, yeah, some jackass who walks up to her and is, like, 
we're gonna, this is a nuisance and, and blah, blah. And she's like, you get the fuck out of here. I'm not giving up a single cat. And he's like, well, some things are going to happen. And she's like, what the fuck does that mean? And when I say she, I'm talking about the lady with the house. So she gets so worked up that she actually like falls off the damn porch. And you're like, honey, just, just stay away from the edge of the porch. Like this is clearly not up to code. Um, so Nancy and her friends take her inside and, you know, lay her down on the couch and they're like, it's okay. They're there. And he goes back at the jackass who like was arguing with her, goes back and like brings up a damn mob. And it's like, you got to get rid of all these cats. And, and Fred says, you know what happened to Gussie? And of course, at this point, you're like, uh, poor qua? Like, what do you mean? Is Gussie a cat? Like, <laughs> because that seems to be the, the Venn diagram of this lady's interests are cats. So if Gussie is a cat, then possibly yes. But no, like Fred is apparently in the mob and the mob that is surrounding the house. And Annie sits up and she's like, Fred is talking about me know what happened to Gussie. Fred knows what happened to Gussie. Look at him. He knows. And honestly, the vibe I was getting from that was like, because we had a torrid affair, but that is apparently not where this book is going with that. Also, it's a children's book. <laughs> Are there torrid affairs? Almost certainly. Um, but anyway, so like Fred all of a sudden turns white and he's like, I, I don't know what she's talking about. I don't know. And then much as though we are watching a stage play, a telegram person comes in and is like, I've got a telegram for Miss Carter. So she hands it over and Andy's like, I, I can't do it. I got a feeling it's bad news, which honestly, like I get that legit. It's, it's a fucking telegram. Probably someone's died. So Nancy opens it and she's like, do you want me to read it? And Annie's like, yeah. And she's like, in front of all these people? And Annie's like, it's fine. So Nancy reads it and says that Gus died earlier that day at the Riverside Institution. And so everybody around is like, oh my God, he's dead. And Nancy, of course, is like, I, I still don't know who the fuck y'all talking about. And so like Fred hears that and he's like, you did this. And Annie's like, I sent him there because you would not take care of him. And if he died there, they were taking the best care of him. I was paying for his upkeep. So why don't you go choke on a dick? And Nancy, of course, is like, I mean, I'm here for all this violence, but also like maybe some follow up. Anyway, so Fred, like all the blood drains out of his face. And he's like, well, I, I mean, and Nancy's like, yeah, um, do you maybe want to shut the fuck up? Because I want to go talk to my father, the inventor of Toaster Strudel, about this. <laughs> it's always going to be the inventor of Toaster Strudel. And Fred's like, who is your dad? And she's like, Carson fucking Drew. And he's like, never mind, it's fine. I'm sure everything is fine. And so everybody, like, kind of, the wind goes out of their sails. And they're like, oh, okay. So they all kind of wander off. And Fred, like, hangs out and shuffles his feet in the back until everybody else is gone. He's like... I'll, I'll cover the funeral expenses and make sure he's buried in the family plot. Bye. And Nancy's like, uh, what? So apparently, and in the book, and I'm going to put my air quotes around this, Gus is described as, quote, simple-minded. And he's like maybe 12. I'm not really clear on what age he's supposed to be. Um, but what Annie tells Nancy is that Gus was under the care of Fred, 
the jackass who was like, she did it, she blah, 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 cats everywhere, blah. Anyway, so Gus was under his care, but Fred never really took care of him, didn't really feed him very well, just, and Fred apparently lives close to where Annie lives. And so Gus would come over to Annie's house, and, um, but Annie wasn't really able to take care of him as well as she wanted to, so she was the one who contacted the institution and had him sent there so that they could, you know, actually do something for him. So, Annie, which, this is kind of interesting, um, she's like, well, if, if he's dead, that sucks, I mean, he was, he was a really cute kid, um, I know this is terrible, but, like, I'm clearly broke as hell, and I paid for him to live at the institution, and I wonder if there's a way that, like, if he has an estate that I could get some money back, because I know that, like, Fred was being paid to take care of Gus, and if there's any money out of that that I could maybe, like, be reimbursed for... I mean, I I feel really, really terrible saying this. And Nancy's like, no, I mean, I totally get it. He wasn't like, you were not supposed to have the responsibility of taking care of this kid. So I get it. Let me talk to my dad about it. And she's like, oh my, I mean, don't, don't go to any trouble. And Nancy's like, no, no, you're, you're good people. Um, you also really need somebody out here to help you around the house because like you fell off the damn porch and also 25 cats. So let me go check into that. So Nancy goes home. She contacts Mrs. Beeling, who was a friend of Hannah, who Hannah has all the friends. Like, Hannah probably knows Mick Jagger at this point. Who knows? Um, but the book says, and I quote, while not actually quoting, she won't be too perturbed by 25 cats. Like, I do understand that it's probably a short list of people. If you're like, how do you feel about cats? No, no. More. More cats. Um, so, Mrs. Beeling says that she would be totally fine hanging out in a cat house. And, oh, <laughs> in the literal sense, not the figurative sense. And Carson, when Nancy talks to him, she's like, please just go talk to her. I mean, please. And so, Carson's like, Ugh, I'm not her lawyer. Like, if she's broke, she can't. She's not hiring me. And Nancy's like, just give her some legal advice. I don't know. It's fine. And Carson's like... Well, I do everything you say, so okay, okay. So they go out there. Mrs. Beeling is like, oh, I, I got this. I got this. It's fine. And Nancy's like, that's a relief because this lady is not going to be able to take care of these 25 cats. And Carson's like, also, is is there a way that we could possibly, like, have fewer cats? Like, maybe less cats. Just, just, I'm just throwing it out. I'm just spitballing here. And Annie's like, no, I will not give up any of my cats. I, I want them all taken care of. She's got, like, this fence slash cage in the backyard that, like, apparently this is where the cats are supposed to be, but there's a hole in it, and she keeps not fixing it, and the neighbors, of course, are being complete assholes, and so Carson's like, look, I've got this friend, he's a veterinarian, and he could come, like, maybe, maybe a few cats, you know, just find them really nice homes, like, no pressure, and Annie sits there and thinks about it for a long time, and she's like, well, I guess he can have everything but the Persians, because I fucking love my Persians, and Carson's like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's fine, you can keep your Persians, that's, that's fine, so she's like, oh, okay, okay, he, he can come, and Carson's like, great, great, that's fantastic, and then they talk about the whole, like, who could she get recoup from the money for Gus, and Carson's like, 
who's the executor of the estate? And Annie's like, well, I would guess that Fred is. And Carson's like, okay, then he's going to just shuffle the money around when he's accounting for all of it. And I would doubt that you get anything out of him because it sounds like he's a total fucking asshole. And Nancy's like, but I mean, you could go talk to him. Like, you could just see if he would tell. And Carson's like, honey, like, I'm not even legit hired to do this. And Nancy's like, please. So, after they leave Annie, who's in good shape, um, they go over to Fred's house. And I think, actually, when they walk in there, I think... um. Fred is not home, but his wife is home. And she comes to the door. Okay, you know that she has bad people because she has a sharp face and she looks shrewd. Which, honestly, like, it, these the words are coded. So shrewd means, like, you're disingenuous. And then clever means that you're a good person. So she's shrewd, though. So she's she's lying about shit. And she's wearing, like, this like dirty apron and the house is full of smoke because she's burned the dinner and you're like oh okay so you're failing at everything like just just generally just not being a good housewife so they come in and Carson's like yeah so we just came to ask a few questions about Gus just and she's like let me go check on dinner and Nancy's like um can I open a window and the woman's like no my husband has not put screens on the windows and you're like um Okay, we'll we'll just die of carbon monoxide poisoning in this house. That's fine. That's fine. Okay, cool. So anyway, they're looking around and Nancy's like, "Yeah, this I'm I'm not touching any surfaces for hepatitis reasons." Um, so she actually tells Carson that yes, they did receive money for Gus and they paid themselves back, like boarding for Gus, like as in like providing him with a house. But she was like, "But we should have taken more money." And that's pretty much all I get out of her before Fred comes home. And he's like, she's confused. We didn't, we didn't get any money for, I don't know what's going by. And, and everybody's like, oh, yeah, of course, yeah, of course, of course. So, yeah. And Carson's like, yeah, I, I got zero good feelings about anything that just happened. And Nancy's like, well, I mean, at least we tried. And, yeah, although, of course, now he knows that, now Fred knows that people are suspicious of him. So that's fun. Um. Let me think. I think, honestly, the next thing that happens, because at this point in the story, like, we've been introduced to the cat lady who is the A-plot. The B-plot is, like, the whole gussy thing. Like, because Nancy's like, this feels fishy. Like, she finds out that whenever um, Fred said family plot, she was like, what is that about? about and so Annie says that like apparently Gus was related to the Wontons W-O-O-N-T-O-N-S and they're apparently some very rich family that lives nearby and she Nancy's like so how did he become the guardian for this child like what I got a lot of questions we all do we all do girl so she goes back to visit Annie and find out how Mrs. Beeling is getting along. Mrs. Beeling's like, everything's fine. I mean, there's this weird tapping noise that is happening, but I mean, I'm sure it's fine. Because at this point I was like, because the Raven is there and we are in this really weird Edgar Allan Poe crossover fic. So there's going to be a lot of tapping at one's chamber door. So just plan for it. It's just going to be Halloween-esque. Um, 
so yeah, Mrs. Beeling's like, yeah, everything's fine. And the vet came and took the cats. Oh, although Mrs. Beeling does say that um, overnight, apparently some of the cats were poisoned because the assholes that live nearby have put out some poison food. So I think four of the cats died overnight and two more of them were sick and maybe died the next morning. And so like, this is just like two sentences in the book, honestly, which is super fucking terrible. It's not like, oh, fuck, like, should we prosecute? And Annie's like, I can't believe this. I mean, how how could they? My my poor little babies. My poor little baby kitties. And you're like, yeah. I mean, seriously, if the people who live near you are that kind of asshole, like, I don't know. Maybe move. Um. So Nancy's talking to Annie about her situation because, you know, she wants to help her. This is how what Nancy does, especially in the original stories. Like, she runs into somebody who has some sort of need and she wants to help them out. So Bess and George have come. Yeah. Bess and George have come. I think Bess and George accompany her on pretty much every trip that she takes out there. Um, and also of course she wants to find out more about the Fred situation. So they're talking to Annie and Annie is just like, she does casually mention that she's been supporting this actress in New York named Beverly. Um, and she sends money to her. I think Mrs. Beeling is actually the one who brings this up initially with Nancy. And it's like, look, she's sending her money, like, all the time. And she clearly doesn't have it to send to her. So, like, that's sketch. And if she would just stop it. And Nancy's like, well, does the actress that she's apparently supporting know that she's just living in, like, a fucking shack with 25 cats? And Mrs. Beeling is like, I don't think so. I think that she's, like, kind of too proud to admit to her that she's doing this. Which, like, she doesn't have any, like, family relationship with Beverly. It's just like, she's just super cute. And I follow her on Instagram. And I just contacted her one day and, and asked if she would, like, maybe, you know, $5 every now and then. Which she writes, like, every few days asking for more money. She's like, I need voice lessons. I need to learn French. I need to maybe get some sex therapy. I don't know. So, so Nancy's like, well, maybe I can talk to her about that. So, she's talking to Annie, and she hears a knock at the door and goes and answers it. I think Annie had to, like, go upstairs for some reason. Um, so, Nancy goes to the door, and she sees this, this spry elderly gentleman sitting there. And you're like... I'm I'm picturing like this really nice shiny top hat and maybe a cane and maybe some gloves, like the full outfit. So this spry older man is like, hello, is Lady Violetta here? And Nancy's like, yeah, there's no one here by that name. (laughs) He's got a fucking boss ass car too. Like he pulls up in a fucking limo and Nancy's like, no, we don't have any here by that name. And the guy's like, oh, I thought she, oh, okay. So he leaves, and um, so Annie comes downstairs, and she's like, oh, who was at the door? And Nancy's like, um, the, it was a wrong number. Like, this guy came to the door and asked for Lady Violetta, and Annie's like, that's me. I'm Lady Violetta. Um, I played that role when I was an actress, like, 17 years ago, or however the fuck long ago it was. And Nancy's like, oh, shit, I told him it wasn't you, oh, my God. So Nancy, like, immediately hops in the car to track down the old dude because he's in a limo. It shouldn't take too long. 
Also, it's 1939, and cars have a maximum speed of like 27 miles. No, I don't know. I literally don't know. So she's trying to catch up to him, and she finally does see the limo, but she's distracted enough that she has like a minor traffic collision with somebody else. And of course, that other person is Fred, the asshole, who is like, you need to watch where you're going, you dumb bitch. And Nancy's like, look, if anyone fucked up here, it is you who proceeded through that intersection without stopping. So if you want to start some shit, buddy, I'm going to start some shit. So he lets it go, and Nancy eventually catches up to the guy who came to the door at the gas station, and she's like, hey, I'm so sorry. Um, I did not know that that was an alias for the woman who lives there. So if you could come back and see her, she is super stoked to see you. And he's like, oh, thank goodness. I haven't seen her in years. And you already know where this is going. You, you know where this is going. He comes back. In the meantime, Bess and George have made her prom ready. So they took her upstairs and they're like, okay, we're going to do your hair. We're going to put on like full prom, some opera gloves, what, your shiniest stripper heels. Like we going to kick you out. So they bring her downstairs. She's, I think she's actually dressed up as Lady Violetta when they bring her downstairs, which again, sounds like a dominatrix name that she had back in the day and Horace was like her favorite client. Anyway, um, <laughs> we have fun here, don't we? Um, so Nancy pulls back up with his name is Horace St. Will, which honestly, the first time I read this, I was like, that's clearly an alias, right? Like that is 100% not his real name, but he never, he never deviates from it. Like, so Horace, Horace, like, I can't imagine shouting that name in the throes of passion, but I'm not Lady Violetta. <laughs> also, she sounds like she'd be a wicked cool assassin. Anyway, so they catch up and he's like, oh my God, I haven't seen you since that last play we did together, which was the tapping heels. And you're like, ah, I see where the title came from. So they, of course, are like, remember this line from it and... Nancy and her friends are like, oh my God, do, do like part of the play for us. And they're like, no, no, we would need more people. And they're like, here we are. So they go upstairs and into her costume trunk and play Disney princess for a hot minute. And just everybody has fun playing stage roles. And Nancy's like, those two old people, they going to bang. Like I see it and I'm, ha I'm here for it. I'm glad, I'm glad to be here for it. Cool. Y'all go get it. Like, clearly they were a thing. Uh, Nancy finds out that actually they did date back in the day, but that Annie was very focused on her career and supporting her family. And so that's why she was like, no, I, I just, he proposed, but I just couldn't say yes. And I'm like, yes, Annie had goals. And now that Annie has 25 cats, she's like, I'm finally ready. You finally have a place in my life as my 26th cat. <laughs> this is your ranking all these Persians, and then you, please understand that, um, so yeah, so Nancy, Bess, and George are like, yes, so actually, um, no, okay, I can't remember what the hell, oh, I think that at this point is actually when, um, Nancy is talking to, she's just casually mentioning, like, oh, the, the whole guest thing, and blah, blah, and Horace is like, I had like this relative named Ralph Wooten. I wonder if he is related to all this business. And Nancy's like, you, you know the family? And he's like, well, I mean, they were wealthy. I mean, it's, it's a pretty good guess. But I don't think they're alive. Let me, let me check my letters. Let me check my correspondence. 
because of course he probably keeps it in a steamer trunk. And so Nancy's like, that would be so fucking boss. Please, please do. And and call my dad and let him know what you find out. And Horace is like, will do, honey. Will do. So the next day they get a call and like Horace actually calls like the next damn morning, which Nancy was like, I was not expecting this, but I'm here for it. So Horace is like, I look back at my letters and Ralph and his wife never had any children. Like he was very clear about that. Um, they went down to South America and that's where they died. So there's that. But like the biggest thing here is that Ralph and his wife didn't have a child and so I don't know who the fuck Gussie would be. Like, they were pretty much the last of them. Like, I don't I don't know who Gus would be. And Nancy's like, okay, so you're telling me that they have Gus, who they're saying is the child of this deceased couple, but there's no proof of it? And apparently Gus inherited everything from this estate. And you're like, okay. Okay. And of course, it's 1939. We can't do fucking DNA testing. Nor do we have Gus. Because remember, like, he he died and Fred is saying that he's disposing of the body. So, uh, oh, okay. I mean, at this point, actually, in the book, you haven't seen Gus. Like, so as far as you're concerned, he was a mannequin, which is super fucking creepy. (sighs) Anyway, so Nancy's curious about all this. And of course, at this point, Ned comes by. Because of course he does. Um, He actually... This is, I think, slightly later in the book, actually. Horace brings by the letters, and Carson's looking through them, and he's like, okay, this is really good evidence. We need a little bit more to actually go after Fred. Um, And so Carson's keeping the letters in his study, and Nancy's home with Hannah, and they hear some weird tapping noises. There's a lot of fucking tapping noises in this book. Like I said, it's like the Ravens happening every 30 minutes on a schedule. They hear a noise, Nancy goes outside, and she sees that there's a ladder that has been put up against the house going up to Carson's study window, which implies that it's on the second floor, even though this is not true of any other book. It's fine. We just needed a ladder. Um, So Nancy's like, fuck y'all, and she grabs the ladder and puts it down so that whoever's up in the house can't get away. And she goes back into the house to track down the person, but when she goes into the study, no one's there, and the letters are gone. Um, Hannah picks up a golf club because she's ready to fuck some people up. But they never see anybody, and so Nancy's like, okay, well, that's super fucking creepy. Um, at that point, Carson and Ned pull up, and Nancy's like, ah, ah, there's, there's an intruder in the house. So they search everything and can't find the person. And Ned's like, well, shit. <laughs> I mean, he, he just casually, I was like, why was Ned in Carson's car? Because, of course, my headcanon, as always, is that whenever Carson and Ned are alone, Carson's like, I know your intentions toward my daughter. How are we looking on the proposal? Like, is that a thing that you're thinking about? And in the book, actually, this is, I think, the first time that Ned has been referred to as Nancy's, quote, special friend, which, again, sounds like a euphemism for fuck, buddy, and I would be 100% here for that. Um, <laughs> special friend. Uh, Ned's like, Nancy, there's there's this dinner cruise tomorrow on a steamboat, and I would really love for you to go. The steamboat is called The Good Time, and I was like, I'm not even having to look for subtext here. Y'all just handing it to me. That's cool. So Nancy's like, I would love to go on a dinner cruise with you. That sounds fantastic. So the next day, they actually go on the dinner cruise, and they have a romantic dinner on the on the deck of the steamboat, and 
I don't even know where the fuck they are. Like, they're in a river, of course. But anyway, like, this is through Ned's fraternity. Like, there's a big bunch of college students. So Ned's like, after dinner, and when there's dancing and everything, Ned's like, look, I've got this friend, and um, he's, like, really fucking socially awkward, but he's a really sweet guy, so can you do me a solid and, like, dance with him, like, maybe one time? And Nancy's like, sure, honey, that's, I'm here for you. I'm here for you to, to like, give a pity dance to one of your friends. So she dances with a guy whose name is Harlan. Um, and she's like, yeah, there's a reason no one wants to dance with him because apparently he's got two left feet and keeps stepping on hers. And she's like, how about we just, like, sit down and have a chat for the rest of this song? And Harlan's like, that's cool. So they sit down, and she's like, so what are you into? And he's like, oh, um, well, I'm studying law. And Nancy's like, like my dad. And he's like, yeah, and I love South America. And Nancy's like, not like my dad, but okay. I mean, I can still work with that. Like, what's your favorite things about it? And he's like, well, I went there when I was little and I loved it and I would love to go back. And Nancy's like, that's cool. I'm I'm seeing a lot of South America references in here. That's fine. Um, in the meantime, like they hear this argument, Nancy and Harlan do. And they glance over and they see that the captain of the steamboat is arguing with a, quote, swarthy sailor. Anyone described as swarthy in a Nancy Drew book, they're going to be a villain. They're going to be associated with the villain or the main ass villain. Like, that's it. I have I've not seen anyone in a Nancy Drew book described as swarthy who did not turn up to be, like, suspicious in some way. So, you know. So, anyway. Um... So they overhear this argument between the two of them. And then, like, the sailor storms off and it's like, you're going to be sorry. And I'm like, some shit's about to go down. Like, the captain's like, and stay out. Um, so, of course, Nancy's like, I'm sure everything's going to be perfectly fine from here on out. So uh, a few minutes later, like, the boat hits another boat because one of the sailors is like, the steering's not working. And so they hit another boat. Everybody flips out and everybody goes to one side of the boat. And the captain's like, no, no, we need to, don't everybody go to the one side. It's gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna tip over. And so Nancy and Ned hear this and they together run to the other side of the boat, like to help balance the weight. But there are so many people on the other side that the boat tips over and dumps everybody into the water. Nancy and Ned are separated immediately, even though they were are holding hands, trying to hold on to each other. And I'm like, it's like Titanic. Um, <laughs> but not like no one wants it in that way. Um, they're, they're split apart. They're thrown apart by the force of hitting the water. And so Nancy, as soon as she surfaces, looks over and she finds Ned, who is helping another group to safety. And you're like, yes, she's like, I know he's a strong swimmer. I just want to make sure he's okay. So she sees that he's okay. She sees that another girl has apparently gotten all tangled up in a deck chair and is drowning. And so she helps her out. Uh, they get to shore. They get dried out. They, um, after they get to shore, like the boat fucking explodes because of course it does. And everybody's like, Oh my God, what just happened? Um, they see that the captain was up there actually, um, like shouting orders and everything. And then the explosion actually blows him off the ship and Nancy swims into the water, grabs him. He's got like burns on his face. He it's you know, it's just not looking good. So she pulls him to the shore and he's like, if, if I don't make it, I have, I have money for my son. And Nancy's like, what the, what, what? 
you're going to be fine. It's it's going to be fine. So um, they take the captain to the hospital. Um, Nancy, of course, gets wrapped in a blanket and everything. Ned takes her home. And um, the newspaper reporters come by, and I was like, because she had not updated her Instagram for 45 whole minutes. <laughs> they needed to come see what was going on. So they interview her about what happened and everything, and they're like, did you see anything, did, you know, whatever? And she's like, no, it, it was an accident, like there are people trying to save it because Nancy overhears this on the shore. Like there are people going around saying what happened and they're talking to the sailors and the sailors are like, it was just a freak accident. The The steering felt weird. And whenever people are like, well, I mean, you know, was there like, was this some sort of human error involved? Like, is there a person we can blame for this? And they're all like, no, no, there's no one we can it, this. But except for, of course, this worthy sailor who was like, it was the captain. Like, he was drunk off his ass or whatever. And everyone's like, the captain. And all the other sailors are like, no, Dick, it was not the captain. Like, he was up there with all the rest of us trying to save the boat. Like, what the fuck? So... Um, so the newspaper reporters are like, the captain, and Nancy's like, no, like, he, no, he was up there with everybody else, there was nothing going on with him about that, so we're going to take a pause right there, because the next sequence is, is going to take a hot minute, so we're going to end with the boat explosion, and Nancy going home to put on some, some dry clothes. I just want to point this out for the record, y'all, you've just been on a dinner cruise with the love of your life. You've just been thrown violently into the water. The boat has exploded. You've been taken to shore. Is this not the perfect time for y'all to maybe do it for the first time? Like, come on, y'all. Like, clinging to each other, saying, I thought that I'd lost you forever. I realized how much I love you. Like, uh, come on, y'all. Come on. Throw me a fucking bone here. Um, or don't, clearly. So, Nancy is home. She's in dry clothes. She's, again... I'm I'm just going to reinforce this. She's just been thrown violently into the water and had to swim to shore for her life from an exploding fucking steamboat. And her friend George calls and is like, hey, um, so my parents are out of town and I thought that maybe we could have a sleepover. And Nancy's like, fuck yeah. And you're like, Nancy, are you on fucking speed? Like, you can rest now. Like, you've just been through some shit. Like, I don't even know if she had dinner. I think that they did. Um... But Nancy's like, yeah, let's let's grab some food and go to a movie downtown, and it'll be good. So, as a side note, yeah. I can't quite remember exactly how this plays out, so I'm just going to throw it in here. Um, <laughs> racism ahoy. Um, so, Nancy is talking to Hannah. Like, this is the day after the break-in, or the attempted break-in, or the real break-in, because I can't find the letters. Um, Nancy, actually, like, at this point, her father has asked a private investigator to get involved, because he had Fred served with papers. And then Nancy and Ned, actually, I'm pretty sure, are the ones who end up going by the house to see if he's there, and he's not there. And then Nancy, Bess, and George go by the house later, and this like little 12 year old narc who lives across the street is like yeah I saw them with some suitcases and they said they were never coming back and Nancy's like there's furniture here and he's like yeah the house comes fully furnished and you're like are you a realtor <laughs> seriously 12 year old please please just go play some video games um 
So they go into the house, actually, and they hear this weird, like, moaning sound from upstairs. They go upstairs, and there's a locked door, and then they hear somebody coming up the stairs behind them, and it turns out to be the P.I., and they're like, oh my god, you scared the shit out of us, and so he finds a key on his key ring that opens the locked door that they're hearing the weird moaning sound from coming from behind, and it's two little Persian kittens who, like, were locked into that room, and you're like, what the fuck, there's another book where there's, um, there's a house that has a tunnel that goes to another house, like a passageway, and that's a way that animals are getting back and forth between the two houses and it's super weird this is not that um it's just two persian kittens ended up in up locked in an upstairs room which again like they take him over to annie's house and he's like oh my god i was missing them i i you know they've gone missing and i thought that something bad had happened they just escaped and you're like okay so fred is just enough of a dick that he stole two persian kittens and then locked them in a room in a house that he knew he was going to abandon like when they pull up they see like there's a bunch of newspapers and two milk deliveries that have been made side note after the first milk delivery wouldn't the second milk delivery be like this is above my pay grade I guess and be like I'm just gonna leave some more milk out here to to just spoil in the sun like oh my god what anyway they also find this scrap of paper that is like went to the D home and Nancy's like clearly my house and it's in the toolbox or something like that and Nancy's like toolbox toolbox we've got a toolbox in the garage so Nancy races back home goes to the the garage opens up the toolbox and the toolbox is fucking empty like there's no tools in it there's no nothing in it and Nancy's like okay let's say that somebody broke into the house they got the papers but they were afraid that we were going to catch them because I took the ladder away and so they had no way out of the house and they were afraid that we were going to find the letters on them so they decided to ditch the letters inside the house and they settled on the toolbox which is in the garage and then they just decided to come back for them later and then apparently they did and they stole everything out of the box not just the letters that they had originally stolen and so Hannah's like yeah there was this again with the racism there was this colored man who had freckles on his face and was saying something about trying to find some work and I just sent him off and Nancy was like freckles and Hannah's like yeah like these discolored spots on his face so like for the rest of this I'm gonna be like the suspected thief like anyway his name is Sam let's just call him Sam like we don't know that now but we're gonna find out later um, so Ned comes up at that point and Nancy like jumps and is like, oh my God, I thought you were Sam. And Ned's like, uh, I know I'm sunburned, but not that much. And you're like, Ned, Ned, honey, shh. <laughs> this is actually the incident where he invites her for the dinner on the steamboat. So I'm slightly chronologically incorrect and it doesn't fucking matter. Um, so yeah, so Nancy knows that she's looking for this guy and I'm pretty sure that whenever she, after the steamboat explosion, when she's like, no, no, I'm ready to party, though, that George is like, yeah, let's go to the movies. That sounds great. They go downtown, and I think that the person that Nancy spots is actually the sailor, the the swarthy sailor. I think that he's the one that she spots. So he meets up with a guy that matches Sam's description, and Nancy's like, oh, we need to follow them. And George is like, of course. Nancy has left a note for her father, like, saying to 
come pick them up or anyway for whatever reason like Carson's gonna come pick him up after the movie or whatever so they decide to follow him and they follow him to the Egyptian temple of the stars which Nancy's like this looks like sketchy as hell and George is like no no one of my friends said that she and her mom went and they tell fortunes and I'm let's go get our fortunes told and Nancy's like this is the worst idea like uh, we're gonna follow them in there but like what like no no so they go in this like really bored ass waitress is like yes let me see i'm gonna take you to a table again this is called the egyptian temple of the stars like are are we expecting dinner theater but no they like sit them down at a table and she's like okay well i'm gonna go get you a meal and the meal ends up costing three dollars which nancy is like it is not worth that which side note three dollars in 1939 money is like 58 dollars in current money and nancy's like this is clearly the 2021 equivalent of the dollar menu like (laughs) i think that she would have been okay with paying like for her three dollars like what would be three dollars to us now like she's like this is just sucktastic like i I ain't here for this shit and the waitress is like would you like to take a drink from the fountain of youth it's only 50 cents and i was like 50 cents and their money is like 10 fucking dollars in ours and Nancy's like, no, thank you. So when the waitress leaves, they sneak back to see if they could find the sailor or Sam or anyone. And so they go back to a room and they're like, oh, can we have our fortunes told? The waitress finds them. And she's like, no, Omar is seeing somebody else right now. And Nancy's like, okay. So they sneak into the room where the session is being held um and they see the sailor who was talking to a person who was apparently omar who was dressed in like egyptian outfit and he's like yes if you know blah blah happens and so nancy and george are like okay so we found the sailor and and he's got something to do with this omar character and and then they're like overwhelmed by the incense like george is like this incense is making me not feel great and then they faint it's not clear in the book like it doesn't sound like the incense was necessarily meant to do that like I can totally imagine that maybe it has some sort of properties in it that would make somebody like more susceptible more tired like less able to think clearly because Omar's like clearly a con man so Nancy and George pass the fuck out on the floor because of the incense and are just laying there sleeping like tiny little toddlers. And so Omar finishes his session, goes, takes off his Egyptian stuff, goes, talks to the waitress who was like, look, we, we barely got any money tonight. Like people are just not showing up. And Omar's like, yes, yeah, about, it's about time for me to skip town and start another racket somewhere else. Like he's, it's weird because in most of these books, like, we center very thoroughly on Nancy's third-person point of view. Like, you're seeing it in Nancy's thoughts and not many other people's, but occasionally, especially when Nancy has passed the fuck out, um, we get to see what other people are doing. So, Omar's like, yeah, this is just, I think we about played ourselves out here in River Heights, so I think it's about time for us to find some other racket. So, he goes back to, after the waitress has left, he goes back to snuff out the incense pots and he finds Nancy and George just passed out on the fucking floor (laughs) and he's just like 
oh, okay. So he wakes him up and he's like, hey, it's, you know, we're, we're closing up. It's time to go. And Nancy's like, oh, shit. What, what the fuck happened? Like, and George is like completely useless. And Omar's like, oh, well, um, you know, is, is somebody going to come by and pick you up? And he's just like, yeah, my dad, Carson Drew. And Omar's like, oh, okay. And inside he's like, yes. Which honestly, like, given everything, makes a whole shit ton of sense for Omar to immediately be like, yes. Because uh, he's looking for money. So when Omar's like, oh, well, I'll... I'll give you a ride home, like, after he finds out who Carson is, and, like, he already knows who Carson is after he finds out that Carson is Nancy's father, and Nancy's like, um, no, that's, that's fine, let me just call home and and make sure that my dad's gonna come pick us up, so Omar, while Nancy is trying to connect the call to her house, cuts the fucking phone line, and he's like, let me just finish locking up the shop, and I'll um, take you out to my car, and George is like, Nancy, he cut the fucking phone line, like, we need to get the fuck out of here, so the girls run to the front of the restaurant, like, it's closed down, it's dark, like, no one should be in it, and they're out, they're trying to find a way out, the door's locked, though, and two cop, like, no, it's one cop, one cop is, like, doing the beat, and he walks by, and he's like, why are there two people in that closed restaurant, that's fucking weird, I'm gonna go get another cop and come back, (laughs) I need some backup, so he runs off, he does not, like, stop and ask him anything, he just runs off to find another cop, and so Omar comes up and finds Nancy and George trying to find their way out, who are still like, oh, hey, we're just, we're just gonna go home, um, He's like, oh, well, the door's this way. So he grabs them and takes them back to the room where they had passed out. And he locks them in and lights more incense. (laughs) Incense. The roofie of 1939. Um, So they pass the fuck out. And Omar's like, yeah. So Omar sits down to write his ransom note, which in in any other circumstances, would be fucking adorable, because he's like, I will ask for $3,000, and of course, in our money, you're like, honey, you can dream bigger than that if you want to, it's like you're Dr. Evil, um, but he thinks about it, and he's like, yeah, I'm gonna say that if he pays me $3,000, and I'll give him a clue, but I'll ask for another $3,000 to reveal where she actually is. And you're like, okay, uh, $3,000 is just under 60 grand now. So if he were to collect the full ransom, then he'd be collecting like not quite 120,000, which is still like super fucking modest. Like, okay, honey. But I mean, okay, okay. And Carson is supposed to be, like, upper middle class, which is complete bullshit. So Omar writes his ransom note, and Nancy and George are passed out in the back room, and he goes to mail it. He he puts it, <laughs> he has Carson Drew's address, and he's he's got the envelope postmarked and everything. And so he walks out the front door, and the cops run into him immediately, and are like, Omar. We saw somebody in your restaurant, and Omar, for a second, like, his heart stops, and he's like, oh, shit, and then he's like, oh, no, no, there's no one there, I just closed up shop, and they're like, can can we come inside, and Omar's like, yeah, of course you can come inside, so he shows him around, and of course, Nancy and George are, like, passed out behind a locked door that, you know, the cops are incompetent enough that they're like, oh, everything's fine here, and Omar's like, yeah, let me just, 
I have a letter to mail, so I'm just going to walk with you. And I was like, telltale heart, like, there's a huge amount of hubris here where he's like, they're not going to catch me mailing a fucking ransom note. Um, But yeah, he just, the cops walk him up to the post office box. He just drops it and he's like, okay, well, I'll see you later. Bye. And the cops are like, bye. And then like, as soon as he's out of Omar's sight, the first um, police officer is like, yeah, um, no, Omar said that maybe I saw the waitress, but that would only be one person, and I remember seeing two people, so this seems kind of sketchy, so he actually goes back, goes into the restaurant, is looking around, and I think at that point, like, Nancy has recovered enough to, like, start banging on the wall, but she has, like, no energy whatsoever, so she's just kind of, like, just the gentlest possible tapping, so, um, the cop hears it, and he's like, that's weird, so he opens up the door, and there's Nancy and George, and he's like, Bagora, because, of course, he's fucking Irish, like all the cops are in these books, um, and Nancy's like, oh my god, thank god you found us, and the cop's like, you broke in here, and Nancy's like, I fucking did not break in here, we are captives, and that guy was going to ransom my ass, so you can kiss all of it, and George is like, yeah, and then falls asleep, because, they they literally cannot keep their eyes open. They can't keep their eyes open long enough to actually tell him who they are. So the cop is like, y'all clearly drunk off your lily white asses, and I'm going to take you to, to jail. And Nancy's like, no, we we didn't do anything wrong. And then she just passes the fuck out. Like, they curl up like little babies in the back of the police van. Like, that's how adorable this is. So the cop takes him to jail, and Nancy's, like, just passed out like a fucking baby. In the meantime... Carson Drew is like looking everywhere for Nancy. He cannot find her. He doesn't know where she went. He doesn't know that she went to this restaurant. He doesn't know what the fuck's going on. Um, and when he doesn't run into her, like he, he knows the case that she's been working because he's been helping her out with it. So he's like, something bad's happened. Like, I just know something bad's happened. Like, oh shit. So he suspects that he's going to get a ransom note. And so the next morning he actually goes up to the post office as soon as it opens and is like, look, I know that normally you would deliver my mail at this point, but can you please look through it and give me whatever you've got? Because I'm expecting a note about my daughter. And so they go through his mail. He hasn't slept. He's just feeling real, real bad. Um, they hand him his mail. He gets the ransom demand for $3,000. He's like, shit. Like, he's just super fucking upset at this point. He has no idea that his daughter is just curled up like a tiny little baby in a jail cell. <laughs> he has no idea. Um, so, the ransom demand, as you know, is for $3,000. So, Carson goes to the bank as soon as it opens and walks out with three fucking grand in cash. He does read the ransom note, and he's like, this is clearly a rank amateur. So, I'm just going to set up a trap. So, he has the P.I., actually follow him to the place where he's supposed to leave the ransom. He's supposed to put it under a triangular rock at a specific tree at a specific intersection, like out in the country. So he takes it out there. Um, the PI is parked out in a tree to see who collects it and follow that person. And so Carson goes home. In the meantime, Nancy has woken up enough to say, do you know who my fucking father is? And they're like, no, we don't even know who you are, drunk lady. And Nancy's like, I am Carson Drew's daughter. And they're like, we are not worthy. And you're like, that is right. That is right. You need to bow down to your royalty. 
so they immediately take her home. Like, they load up George and, like, initially the cop's like, I don't know, though. Like, are you really Nancy Drew? So they take her and Hannah's like, of course this is Nancy Drew. Oh, my God, you asshole. So then Carson, after he has dropped off, again, the three fucking grand in cash, again, I'm going to, he just had 58 grand in his bank account, is what we are supposed to believe. Um, you know, just hanging out, just waiting for ransom demands. So Nancy, like, runs up to him, and she's like, Dad, he's like, oh my God, oh my God, you're here. And Nancy's like, yeah, so, and it was this guy named Omar, and he's at this temple and he's a bad guy and Carson's like yeah we're gonna catch him and Nancy's like the ransom money like you you didn't pay the ransom right and Carson's like don't worry I have a plan um but Omar apparently sensing that his plan has not gone as he wanted never comes to collect the ransom like he says to do it within like 12 hours or something and um they leave it out there but he never comes and so they go back and collect it of course, at this point, Carson's like, I don't like this. Like, you've been kidnapped. You've been, like, the that sailor. I, I just don't like any of this. I think you should get out of town. And Nancy's like, I, I really would prefer not to. As for me, I was like, first off, honey, you have done it before. You have left town when your dad was like, things are a little bit too sketchy for you right here, right now. Second... You can be like, Ned, can you come be my bodyguard and we can just, you know, maybe shack up in a hotel. Like, I'm just saying, I'm just pointing out options for you. Like, you don't have to pick up what I'm putting down, but I wish you would. Um, so Carson's like, yeah, just ha- have a really bad feeling because honestly, um, after this point, Nancy thinks about it and she goes to Harlan, the guy who, remember, stepped on her feet during the steamboat disaster. <laughs> just the titanic of steamboats um that was not the name of it i don't fight the good time the good time was the name of it It was it was a terrible time (laughs) it was an ironic name um so she goes to harlan and she's like do you remember when we saw that 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 sailor was arguing with the captain and harlan's like yeah yeah i remember that and nancy's like yeah well i've gone by to see the captain and he is just like at the point of suicide, he's so upset over all this because he thinks that everybody hates him and blame him. They blame him for the what happened on the boat. And like, if you could maybe do him a solid and we can talk to the insurance people because they're saying that he staged the whole thing or it was his fault and they're not going to pay and blah, blah. So Harlan agrees and the insurance people apparently talk to the reporters and say that no they found out it was a sailor who was involved so the sailor actually well the sailor does not announce himself when he calls but he's like is this Nancy Drew and Nancy's like yeah and he's like you need to shut up about that thing that happened or it's gonna be bad for you and Nancy's like really sailor okay why don't you come say that to my fucking face so the sailor's like I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not who you think I am. And Nancy's like, come say it to my fucking face, you piece of shit. And he's like, um, bye. So that is one of the reasons that Carson's like, I really don't want you home right now because sailors are threatening your life. And also this Omar person has it out for you. And Nancy's like, fine. Um, let me think. 
Also, at this point, they found out that Omar skipped town without paying, like, three months back rent, which is a common thing among these people. Fred apparently also skipped out while, like, owing some back rent, too. Um, she also finds out that Sam had been visiting the temple, like, every day, which seems weird. And also because they bear a slight resemblance to each other. Nancy's like, I don't think Omar's Egyptian. I think that he's actually black. Um... They think that probably Sam and Omar are related in some way. And I'm like, yes, because all black people are immediate family members. Dipshits. Anyway. <sighs> anyway. So Nancy's like, okay, okay, let's, let's go to New York. Um, I can't specifically, I think that what they, what they decide to do actually is to go talk to Beverly. Who you will remember is the starlet who is hitting Annie up for money every other day. Uh, before they leave town, they do go talk to Annie, who first off is like, Nancy, you have been so sweet to me. I want to give you a Persian kitten. And Nancy's like, oh, my God. Um, she does not actually give her said kitten in this book. And there's a future book where Nancy has a kitten named Snowball. And I'm like, hmm. But that's not clearly established in this book. Um she also finds out that there's still this like weird tapping noise that's happening in the house, which again, the raven, the raven has come to you. It's, it's a portent of death. Um, so actually Mrs. Beeling is feeling a little weird. Like she's like, I mean, everything's fine except for the weird tapping sounds and we cannot find where they're coming from. And Nancy's like, have you like checked? Like maybe it's the wind or, and they're like, no. And Annie's like, well, I mean, I like this house, but the neighbors are kind of fucking hostile and also ghosts. So anyway, because again, Scooby-Doo. Um, so yeah, Nancy's gone by to talk to her and she's found out that yes, Beverly's still hitting her up for money. So, so they go to the train station and they're going to get on a fancy new electric train, y'all to go up to New York, and they are not going to stay with Nancy's Aunt Eloise, who is who they stay with for most books. Instead, they're going to stay with Bess's Aunt Helen, who I don't remember ever popping up again, honestly, but I mean, it's fine. Um, while they're at the train station, they actually see Horace. Horace is also going to go to New York, and they're like, oh my god, you're going to New York? And Horace is like, yeah. As you know, because Horace is... He honestly, in my head, he looks like the little dude from Monopoly. Um, he's got a limo. He's just rocking it. He has a lot of money, and he has decided that he wants to buy the rights to Annie's play and then produce it, and then that way Annie will get royalties because she helped write the play. Like this is his way of giving her money because he knows that she's very, she's very proud, and she doesn't want to admit that she's in like desperate circumstances. So that's what he wants to do. That's his plan. So he's going to New York to meet with somebody who can help him with that plan. And so Nancy, Bess, and George are like, oh, my God, that would be so sweet of you. And he's like, yeah, I've got the perfect actress in mind who can play the part. Like, I think she'd be great at it. And they're like, oh, that's really cool. And he's like, her name is Beverly. And they're like, fuck. And they don't want to tell him that, like, Beverly has been hitting Annie up for money, like, all the damn time. Because... I mean, technically, like, if the play does well, then maybe Beverly would stop hitting Annie up for money, but also Beverly seems like she might not, so anyway, so they just decide to be, like, really, like, oh, that's great, like, really noncommittal about that, um, so they go to New York, and every time they go to New York, it's kind of hilarious, like, Nancy acts like she's 
not a native and not familiar with this city. Like, she does casual touristy things. Um, and this one, they don't go to the Statue of Liberty or anything. They do go to the Battery. They go around to, like, various cultural sites. But anyway, um, the first thing they decide to do, actually, is to go see Beverly. So they're staying with Bess's Aunt Helen. And when they walk into Aunt Helen's apartment, apparently Aunt Helen has painted all the walls to look like they're walking into a woodland scene and I was like this is how horror movies start um (laughs) but no this is not the kind of book that this is so they you know get freshened up and everything they go over to Beverly's apartment um Beverly is there and as soon as they walk in Beverly's like you will not do as a maid like you clearly have not had a lot of experience and had a a specific kind of person in mind and Nancy's like we're not maids and like your friend Annie Senna like we were friends with Annie and Beverly's like oh oh you want to be actresses well you need to go off for a few years and like get some life experience because y'all way too young to do that to pull that off and I need you to go because I got a lot of shit going on and Nancy Vess and George are like I fucking hate you. Like, they are completely affronted by everything, especially the assertion that, oh my God, y'all are maids. And they're like, we are not maids. Oh my God, how dare you? And I'm like, Nancy's totally fine with playing a maid when she needs to, like to get information out of somebody or to break into a room or whatever. But she's like, oh my God, how dare you? And you're like, just slow your roll for a sec, hon. It's okay. It's okay. Um, so somebody actually walks up to the door, like, as Nancy, Vess, and George are there, like, should we just haul ass? Because she's a bitch. Somebody comes up to the door to deliver a dress to Beverly. This is the dress that I alluded to earlier, the $189 dress, which is about $3,700 now. And Beverly's like, let me look at it before you go to make sure it's the right thing. I've got a very important dinner tonight, and I need to make sure that I look fantastic. And you're like, okay, 189 right now is like some fancy ass prom like if you're buying a fucking $3,700 dress you better look like a fucking Bob Mackie Barbie and I ain't joking like I'm talking feathers I'm talking just you can't even walk through a regular ass doorway you you better be rocking it like full Marie Antoinette like just just killing it but anyway And then, like, as she's checking over the dress, this old lady comes up to the door in, like, this, like, raggedy outfit and, like, gnarled work hands. And she's like, Beverly, I'm so sorry. And Beverly's like, oh, my God, can you not see that I have company? Like, I got nothing for you right now. And the old lady's like, I'm so sorry. I I know that you've got a life and you don't want to have to deal with me. And Beverly's like, here, just take a dollar. And the old lady's like... I know you just don't have any time for your for a grandmother right now. And you're like, oh, my God. Like, seriously, can you make a less likable character? Oh, my God. Like, unless she was like, I'm also going to indulge in a little bit of light infant sacrifice later. Like, just dabbling. Just going to see how it plays out. And maybe I'm going to kick some puppies on the way there. Like, seriously. Are we talking like Cruella de Vil origin story here? Um... So after they've seen all this, like, Bess is like, let's just get the fuck out of here. Like, I, I ain't here for this shit. So they make some casual comments to her on the way out. They were like, yeah, well, look, 
Annie is just, her life circumstances are just real, real bad right now. So you need to stop hitting her up for money. And Beverly's like, she is not hard up for money. Like she has never mentioned anything like that to me. And she knows how much I need her. And the girls are like, uh, no, like she's, you don't even go visit her. If you did, you would see the circumstances that she's living in. Like you're just a stuck up selfish bitch and we got to go. Also, Carson Drew is looking into this and Beverly's like, oh shit, Carson Drew is looking into this. Okay. And Beverly's like, well, you didn't tell me that. And Bess is like, cause you didn't give us any time to talk, you bitch. Goodbye. So they open the door and who is standing there but Horace. Horace is standing there because he came to take Beverly out for dinner. And Beverly's like, oh my God, I didn't expect you yet. And Horace is like, is is what you just said about Annie true? That she's hard up for money and she's been supporting Beverly. And they're like, yeah, it is. And Horace is like, really? Uh, okay, well, I, I kind of need to process this. Like, I'm I'm just not in the mood for dinner. And Beverly's like, no, I got this, this sick-ass dress. And, like, we've got to go to dinner. I need your help. I need your help, Horace. And he's like, well, I, I guess so, if, if you really need me. So the girls are like, ugh. Ugh. Like, it's, it's just a bad situation all around because, again, you don't want to reward her incredibly terrible behavior. I mean, the thing is that, like, they do ask Horace, they're like, do you really think that she's, like, that good an actress? And Horace is like, yeah, she's, she's, like, spoiled and self-interested, but when she gets up on stage, like, I, I think a little bit of training, like, she could really knock it out of the park, and they're like, okay, I mean, you're, you are the expert in all this stuff. Um, the other thing that happens, let me think, I think it's maybe the next day like they talk to Horace and Horace is like yeah I had a good conversation with her and it sounds like everything's gonna be like I think that she's gonna work out really well with this um they go to have a meal with Bess's aunt at the Black Cat Cafe and I'm like Le Chat Noir and Nancy looks over and she's like oh my god be quiet and they're like what what and it's because Nancy has seen Fred and his wife, who, remember, skipped town, and they have not seen any sign of them since. So Nancy's like, we need to follow those assholes. Like, because we need to find out, like, the main thing here that they're concerned about is finding out whether Fred has control over Gus's inheritance and whether Annie can get any money back out of it. Like, that's pretty much what they're concerned about right now. So they follow them without being spotted. Like they, they're like, follow that taxi. And they find out that they are getting on a big old like transatlantic steamer. It looks like is where it, actually this one's not transatlantic. This one is going to be going to South America because of course this book is obsessed with South America. And actually in the next book, Nancy goes to South America. So there's that. Um, so they find out that they've bought tickets. Um, they send in Bess's aunt because, of course, Fred would recognize the other girls. And so she says, yeah, they're going to set sail on Thursday. And the girls are like, oh, yeah, that's great. That's great. That means that um, that we've got some time. Because initially they're like, well, we should just grab them. We should just report them to the police here. And Nancy's like, well, all the evidence we've got right now is kind of circumstantial. So let me get the PI who 
honestly should be involved in all this shit because he's being paid to. Uh, let's get him to come up here and follow him. So they follow Fred back to the hotel. Nancy goes in after them to see where they're signed into the register. So she's got their room number. And then she calls up the PI who is not home. <laughs> and honestly, like, we forget that, like, if somebody wasn't home, you're like, oh, well, shit. Like, that's it. There's no, like paging them or any of that shit so Nancy asks his wife she's like do you know like when he might be back and his wife is like well he's on the way to New York and Nancy's like oh he's on the way to New York fantastic she says yeah I think he's supposed to get there like seven o'clock tomorrow morning so like maybe if you just stake out the train station which again like is that your only choice like finding out somebody's destination and being like I will just loiter there like an asshole but Nancy's like yeah that sounds great that sounds great. Um, so that night, Nancy can't sleep because she's so nervous about making sure that she meets the right train the next morning. And so in the morning, whenever Bess and George wake up, when she's like, hey, wake up, we got to get dressed. Um, she's already made breakfast for them. And also she's like, so I had a thought last night while I couldn't sleep. And I contacted the person in charge of the river Riverside home, the place that Gus was sent, just to like ask on a few details about Gus. And they said they never sent that fucking telegram. And Bess and George were like, Jigga what? Because, yeah, there was no telegram saying that Gus was dead. The person who signed it didn't sign it. Like, that person says, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. And Nancy's like, so Gus is still there? And they're like, actually, no. Um, So his guardian, Fred, came up to see him a few days earlier, and he said that he wanted to get Gus, and Gus refused, and then Gus ran away, like, I think the day that you got the telegram. We think that maybe the Guardian came back and tried to get him, and that might have been what happened, but yeah, he he didn't die here, like, he's not in the best health or anything, and Nancy's like, that is very interesting, thank you, and she tells Bess and George, here's, here's where magical is, magical everything happens, um, that, Apparently, if Gussie had a very delicate, expensive operation, it could restore him to, quote, normalcy. And I was like, are we talking, like, fucking transorbital lobotomy here? Or, like, what are, what exactly are we talking about? And the book fucking hand waves it. Like, it 100% is not interested in you knowing what this child's actual diagnosis is or what this operation entails, or any of that shit. Like, they are just going to hand wave the shit out of this. So, we're going to pick up with what happens when they meet the train for the next segment. Okay, and what may be my favorite scene of this entire damn thing. Um, Nancy, Bess, and George are at the train station waiting for the PI to show up. And they're looking, and they're like, oh my god, maybe he's coming on a later train, I don't see him. And this guy in a felt hat walks up, like, with slightly different, like, a mustache or some shit. And he walks up, and he's like, are you looking for me? And it's like a fucking Gene Parmesan moment from Arrested Development, where they're like, oh, my God! Which, again, like, (laughs) I just imagine the sheer delight of the girls clapping their hands and going, you did so good, honey! You did so good! Um, So he comes up, and he's like, I've got a warrant for Fred's arrest! Yeah! And you're like, on what grounds? And apparently he's been smuggling in, quote, aliens from South America. And you're like, of course he has. Like, earlier in the book, like, they said that Fred and his wife would go away for, like, 
a week at a time or whatever and just leave Gus to his own devices and so it was starving all the time and that's part of the reason why Annie was taking care of him like she just got used to it um so yeah I mean there's no real indication as to what's happening to people he's smuggling in from South America like I mean you're never given any reason to really like Fred especially after you find out that Gus is very likely still alive and Fred is just like yeah, I'll just pay for him to be buried, IDK. And Nancy's like, well, no wonder he said that. Like, he's he's not paying for funeral expenses because there's no there's no one to bury. Like, dipshit. Um, so yeah, so the PI is super excited because he's Nancy's like, yeah, we know where he is, and so they go to the hotel, and then the PI's like. And he checked out five minutes before I got here and didn't leave a forwarding address. And Nancy's like, of fucking course. Like, I really wish that I had done something different. Like, maybe, you know, called local police officers or something. And the P.I.'s like, look, you know he's probably going to be on that steamship. So, I mean, it's fine. It's fine. Um, they talked to Horace, who says that he's going to take the midnight train back to River Heights, well, or the River Heights area, because he's resolved his business. Like, he's contacted somebody about selling their rights to the place to produce it. Um, he's So somebody's willing to buy it. He's Beverly has said that she's going to take over the lead role. So, he, you know, he's done. Like, he, he doesn't need to do anything else. And he also wants to get back to his lady for reasons. Um, so Nancy, Bess, and George are like oh, well, okay, and he's like, I really wish you'd come with me, just, you know, we can hang out on the train, it'll be nice, and Bess and George apparently were only supposed to stay for, like, these two days, like, their parents are not okay with them staying any longer, and so Nancy's like, well, I guess we'll just, I'll go back on the midnight train, and the PI's here, and he's got an arrest warrant, so everything's gonna be fine, so they do a little sightseeing, and they go back to the train station, and that's when they see Fred and the two black guys, Sam and Omar, talking, and Nancy, of course, tries to get as close to them as she can to see what they're talking about, and they're like, let's, let's go talk elsewhere, so they leave the train station and go to, like, this park bench, well, Bess and George, I think, are supposed to go grab the PI or something, and I think that, anyway, so, anyway, it's just Nancy and Horace who decide to follow. I'm not sure why. It, it's fine. Um, so, they follow, and Nancy hides herself in some bushes, and Horace is like, look, I'm going to go call the cops and tell them where we are, so then can pick all these, all three of them up at the same time, and Nancy's like, great. So, he leaves, and Nancy's still in the bushes, and she's listening, and apparently, the three of them have found out who the identity of the captain's son is, and it turns out to be Harlan, who, like, honestly, if you squint, like, eh, it kind of makes some sense. Um, but anyway, so Harlan is Ned's college friend who has two left feet and loves South America, and the captain, like, they find out that the captain was off at sea, his wife died while he was gone. The child was put in basically an orphanage and then adopted out. And so he never knew what exactly happened. He couldn't track his son down after that. So he's been looking for him, but he hasn't been able to find him. And so they found out that it's Harlan. And so they want to basically send the captain like, we know information about where your son is. Give us some money. And so Nancy hears that and she's like, ah, oh, shit, ah, oh, shit. 
and of course she's shocked that it's Harlan. But a dog like runs into the park and runs into the bushes and the three guys turn around and they see Nancy and so like immediately they grab her and they're like, yeah, because Omar's like, finally, another ransom demand and hilariously Fred's like, he is not an ordinary dick, like that's legit, the words that are in the book, please understand that I, I experienced much joy, much, much joy when I read that, the word dick meaning private detective in a a mystery novel meant for children. It's fine. It's fine. Um, he's like, I don't know about this. And the other guys are like, it's going to be fine. It's gonna, they'll never find us. You're, we're going to put her on a steamship going to South America. Like, it's perfect. And Fred's like, uh, I guess you're right. So they load up, they steal a car immediately, load up Nancy into it and take her to the steamship. And the cops come like 30 seconds later after they've loaded her up into a car and with Horace and Horace is like she was just here and so the cops are like well they can't have gotten far and they head off in exactly the wrong direction so they don't know they don't know about the steamship thing um so what happens is Fred and his wife know the chief officer aboard this ship and apparently he's been involved in the smuggling operation or something. So he they make a deal with him to that they're going to get Nancy on board and he's going to basically just not announce her like she's not going to be an official passenger. And he won't say anything like he sees Nancy. He sees that she's clearly like being marched on board between these two people and he's just like nothing to see here. So they take Nancy to the room, I think, next to Fred and his wife, and they tie her up and leave her there, and that's it. And, of course, Bess and George are, like, wondering what the fuck's going on, because, of course, they are. And George is like, you know, she's been kidnapped again. Her dad's going to be real, real mad. (laughs) Like, he sent her away to get her out of danger, and, like, she manages to get kidnapped by the exact same people who were threatening her back in River Heights, which kind of goes back to Nancy's original objection to leaving, where she's like, look, I'm I'm going to keep investigating whether I'm here or there, and, like, Carson knows his daughter, and he's like, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. He even says, like, she loves her freedom so much, like, he... He does consider hiring a bodyguard for her, which again, Ned, Ned, perfect bodyguard. Yes, I would write that damn story. Um, but like he just decides against it. So anyway, so Bess and George are talking to each other and they're like, well, we don't know where Fred is now. Like the only lead that we have is we know that he's going to be on board that ship. So let's go to the ship. So Bess and George on their own initiative go to the ship, like, they don't, they decide that they're not gonna, like, get anybody else involved, they're just gonna go see for themselves, so they sneak on board, because it's still up in the dock, and they are looking around the ship, they can't, they don't know what they're looking for, really, um, so they don't get very far, and then they see that the private investigator and the cops have also boarded the ship, and they're like, oh my god, you guys had the same idea, because, like, George feels, George especially feels very, like, frustrated with the fact that nobody seems to be doing anything, like, there's no leads to follow or anything, so she's very excited when she sees that the PI and the cops are there, so the captain of the ship, who is apparently an older gentleman, is like, yeah, the chief, uh, the chief officer will help you out with this, so 
of course, the chief officer is the guy who's involved in this up to his neck. And so he's like, yeah, I'm happy to show you around. And he shows him around everywhere and just makes sure that he does not take them anywhere near where Nancy's being held. Because, you know, why why invade any, invite anything? And, you know, they're all so thoroughly turned around and everything that they don't, they don't know that they haven't seen everything. And I'm like, just maybe keep track of room numbers. I mean, it's fine. But eventually they're like, well, I guess, I guess I'm not here. Okay. Okay. So they leave the ship and Bess and George leave the ship and they look at it and Bess looks back. Bess or George look back. It may have been both of them. And they see that the chief officer, like as soon as everybody's off the ship, kind of slumps in relief and smiles. And George is like, I got a real bad feeling about this. Like, I think that he just, I think he's involved and I think that he just made sure that we couldn't find her. Like, I don't like this. And Bess is like, then let's just go back. Let's, let's get back on board. But they know that he's involved. Like, he's, I guess, the second officer of the ship. So they have to be really careful about how they do this. And so um, they kind of sneak on in a bigger group to make sure that the chief officer doesn't see them. And there's this old lady who's complaining to a stewardess who is like, there is this tapping near my cabin, and I do not care for it. And Bess and George are like, tapping tapping nancy was tapping yes so they go to this the old woman they're like we believe you can can we go see your room and she's like of course you can so all four of them go up to the old lady's room and they hear the tapping and Bess and george are like that's nancy that's nancy she's tapping out help um so the stewardess is like well i'm gonna have to I think that she actually does manage to open the door. They find Nancy there. And Nancy's like, oh, my God, I'm so glad you found me. I've been tapping for, like, hours. And, uh, oh, my God. And so the stewardess is like, well, you stowed away. And passengers are like, what the fuck? She clearly did not stow away. She was clearly tied up. Like, what the, are you blind? And she's like, well, I'm going to have to go get the chief officer. And all three of the girls are like, he's involved, though. He did this. And she's like, well, I have to go get him anyway, I guess. And so he actually comes up at that point, and he's like, young lady, you stowed away aboard this. You should be ashamed of yourself. And so he's, like, marching her out. And so the stewardess has gone to the captain. And then the... I think that actually, like, Steve... Stephen, I think is his name, is the PI. He has come back on board because he still has that warrant for Fred's arrest, and he still he knows that Fred is probably going to board the boat because it's about to depart. So, the PI says, "Yeah, this is Nancy." They hide on the boat. They grab the couple as they come back on the boat, like right before it's about to set sail, and they're in disguise, like wearing like white wigs and canes and everything. They're like. Oh, we're we're old people, and and the PI's like, hi, yeah, no, and they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. And he like whips their wig off like it's a fucking Scooby Doo episode, and he's like, it's been here the whole time. Um, so they get everybody. They manage to grab Fred and Sam and Omar, take them back to River Heights, and they put them on trial. What I don't quite understand is apparently Fred and his wife get a, like, kind of sleazy attorney, and Carson is the one who's fucking prosecuting, and I was like, is Carson being a special prosecutor for this case? Because, like, he's not the DA, 
actually in Illinois, it would be a state's attorney, but because this is like generic Midwest, it's whatever. Um, so apparently Carson Drew is the one who's going to be prosecuting this mofo. So he actually gets Fred's wife on the stand and he's talking to her and he's like, so Gussie, you know, you were taking care of Gus. And she's like, yeah, yeah, we really care. I, I just, I don't want to talk about him. And Carson pulls a fucking Perry Mason. He's like, isn't it true, Mrs. Bunce, that Gus is your son? And she's like, <gasps> and Fred's like, shut up. Shut, we're, we're not going to talk about that. And Carson's like, did you try to pass him off as somebody else's son because you were ashamed of him? And she's like, yes. Oh, my God. Fred, it was Fred's idea. And, like, she's bro- breaking down on the stand. Like, it's, it's very fucking Perry Mason. And I am here for this shit. So they admit that... Fred was apparently a secretary for the couple, Ralph Wounton and his wife. He was a secretary, and he would, like, keep keep up with the house while they were away. And then when they had their son and then the couple disappeared, they decided to just pass him off as the son of the deceased couple so that he would inherit all the money. And, yeah. But they treated him really shitty. Like they do pretty much acknowledge that like the wife is a little bit more sympathetic if we're actually going to talk about this but Fred seems to be like thoroughly an asshole so he gets put away for like his fraudulent activities the Sam and Omar get put away for their fraudulent activities completely off screen like we don't get to see this Nancy announces on the stand that she found out that they were going to blackmail the captain of the exploded steamboat over the identity of his son, who she announces in open court. And so that's announced in the newspapers. And But we don't get to see them being, like, reunited or anything. Like, it's just, like, a dramatic bombshell in the courtroom. Nancy is star witness. Nancy has been kidnapped twice at this point. Like, oh, my God, Becky. Um, yeah. So, really, the only loose end that we have to tie up at this point is Annie and the play. And so, they go to the first performance of the play, and Annie's like, well, they're preparing for it. And Annie's like, I've got this really cool thing. And the girls are like, tell us everything. And Annie pulls out this pair of mechanical tapping shoes, which will tap even if no one is tapping with them. And the girls are like, that's fucking awesome. Um... If you use them in the performance of the play, like, the first time, like, everybody's going to just go crazy for it. It's just going to be fantastic. And so, um, Annie makes sure that Beverly has them for the first performance, so she gives them to her. And Beverly, of course, has mellowed out some because she was not irredeemable. She was just, like, fucking Violet Beauregard off Willy Wonka for a hot minute. But now she is a lot more respectful and she's really excited about the fact that she's gonna probably make a bank off this and then she looks for the shoes and she's like oh my god the shoes are missing oh p.s um while they're preparing for the the opening of the play um she goes back to annie's house and you know the same time that annie's showing them the shoes and everything and she mentions that yeah they've been hearing weird things in the cellar and nancy's like i got an idea so she goes to hide in the cellar at night and the housekeeper puts down the food for the cats and Nancy sees somebody run up to the scraps that have been put down for the cats and she grabs the person of course the person is Gus like of course the person is Gus like of course all that tapping that they were hearing was Gus just hiding in the house because he had nowhere else to go which is honestly pretty fucking bleak 
Like, if you pull back any part of this story, it's all, like, pretty fucking bleak. Like, Annie in this house with, like, 25 cats who just kind of retreated from society after she retired from acting. And Horace, who has always been pining for her and just didn't know where to find her. And then you've got Gus, who has been, like, really terribly mistreated by his parents. Even though, like, like they kind of used his disability. I don't know. It's like they took whatever his disability was, which again is never really clarified in the book and are like, yeah, we're just going to use you as an instrument to basically take over an estate that's not yours. So that honestly puts everything kind of up in the air. Um, But anyway, so Nancy finds out that it's Gus and he wants to stay with Annie because Annie's always treated him nicely. And Annie's like, well, I mean, uh, okay. I mean, I'm got no fucking money, but you know, I I love the little kid. So, and of course now his, I think that it's just, I think that both of them are in prison, actually. I think that both his mother and father are in prison at this point. Um, so Annie brings Gus to the premiere and Gus is the one who stole the tap shoes, which does make you wonder if maybe he had been playing with the tap shoes and that was the weird tapping sound that they've been hearing, but that's never really clarified. But anyway, um, the play, of course, is a huge hit. Nancy looks at the um, at Annie and Horace, the couple, and is like, y'all gonna get married. And they do, of course. Off screen, you know, we've only got 200 pages in which to cover this thick cornucopia of drama. And the last thing, actually, is that the estate that, quote, Gus inherited goes to Horace. Because, of course, it does. Um, Because he was the last surviving relative of that couple. So he actually bankrolls the operation that the very delicate operation meant to restore the child to normalcy so that he can be with his peers. And it says, like, he has the operation that's successful and after months of therapy in the hospital. And I did appreciate that, that it wasn't overnight. After months of therapy in the hospital, he is actually able to join his the people who were, like, of his own age in school, which, again, like, that's pretty fucking miraculous, and I've got a lot of follow-up questions. Like, I don't really know of anything that matches that description of what's going on with him. But, I mean, it's fine. This, this is all fantasy, so it's fine. Um, so, yeah, everything is great. Um, the play was a smashing success. Beverly is no longer financially dependent upon Annie. Annie is Annie is going to get married to Horace, who is loaded. And, yeah, Nancy doesn't win a loving cup in this one. Like, that does not happen for her, which is pretty sad. She has promised a Persian kitten, but has not said kitten has not been delivered. So there's that. She does get the gift of being kidnapped twice by the same asshole. <laughs> you know, as you do, and getting to just sleep it off in the back of a paddy wagon like she's just fucked up on NyQuil. It's fine. Um, So the next book that we're actually going to pick up with is The Mystery of the Brassbound Trunk, which is going to involve Nancy taking a ship to South America, which is pretty fucking cool, with a cat. Again, you know, not maybe not the cat, although there's there's just a lot of weird stuff that happens in the next book, including some Ned, because you know that that's exactly what the fuck I'm here for.
so yeah, I hope you enjoyed this first trip back to the mystery stories. My favorite, my absolute favorite. Um, yeah. A lot of casual racism. A lot of just fucking casual racism. Like, it's never even fucking explained, like, what the hell happened. Like, how did... How did Omar and Sam get involved in all this stuff? Like, Omar is just, like, a complete scam artist who is just scamming anybody he runs across, honestly. And Sam is just... Stealing tools out of people's garage? I mean, apparently he sends them over there just so that... Fred sends them over there just so that he won't be recognized. And it says that, I think... Sam apparently did some work while Fred was working for the rich couple, and that's how they knew each other, but it's all just really fucking sketch, and I was like, the mysterious death in South America of the wealthy couple, that's never connected back up, like, that's never, like, oh, it was, it was Sam who did it, it was, no, like, that's, that's not the kind of shit that we're gonna pull here, it's just like, a mysterious death in South America so that you can inherit some money. It's kind of interesting how in these books it's, like, about financial insecurity being the major big bad that you have to fight for a lot of these people. Like, oh, if only I had the recognition that I deserve, if only I had, like, a steady income, if if I had this inheritance that I was promised, then everything would work out for me, which is pretty interesting. I mean, it would be considered fairly groundbreaking now. Like, it's this weird Cinderella thing where it's like, if only I could have this thing that was my birthright all along. Like, poor fucking Gussie. Like, he's, the way he's presented in text is, like, really pathetic. I mean, I'm gonna say that. Like, he is meant to evoke pity out of the audience where it's just like, oh, he's just... He's living like a fucking feral child in her cellar and doesn't want to be sent back to the home and just, like, wants to be near her because she's the only person who's shown him any kindness. And, like, oh, my God. Like, and he's eating scraps that were meant for cats. Oh, anyway, yeah. Yeah, I mean, everything pretty much works out for everybody. Like, And now we know that if you're ever around incense and you're like, I think I'm about to pass the fuck out, that you might be about to be roofied. Like, just get the fuck away from there. Get some fresh air. Fabrice that shit. Just get away from it. But yeah, like, that's where we landed on that. All the bad guys are in jail. Like, Carson, Perry, Mason, them into it. It's fine. And again, I think I mentioned this early on, that like, it's really fascinating to me that Perry Mason and Nancy Drew are pretty much contemporaries, like, if we're looking at the original text, but anyway. All right, so join me next week for The Mystery of the Brass Bound Trunk, and stay sleuthy, my friends.